welcome to Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast, episode two. Last week, we had Anne Pickering, head of HR for, for O2, um, the highest valued UK company in terms of brand. And this week, we're talking about um, Tony Nadal, the coach and uncle of the world's number one tennis player. For a number of years, um, Telefonica has, has sponsored Rafa Nadal, and we've been working with Rafa and Tony to open up some of the, understand some of the magic around coaching, a high-performing team, and, and well-being, and how is it that Rafa sustained himself over 15 years on the circuit. Um, we recently recorded an interview with, with Tony Nadal, and in this podcast, we'd like to highlight, take the highlights from the interview and some subsequent comments. Yeah, and I mean, it was so good to get Tony here. You know, as you say, Rafa's been, you know, an ambassador for Telefonica for a number of years, and we've been using his case, Rory, and some of the teaching here going back about, you know, five or six years at least. Uh, if you remember, there's a very interesting uh, Nike commercial uh, that, that we used in class, which looked at how, you know, Nadal was a two-handed player and then he actually went to use his left hand and playing tennis, but he can't actually do anything else, like write his name or brush his teeth with the same left hand. So we used that within the classes as a means of showing, you know, the power of positive practice and how you can change if you put in the time. And I think Rafa Nadal is one of those examples of someone who undoubtedly has a lot of talent, but he works really hard as well. Um, so it was interesting to to listen to some of the things that, that Tony had to say. So we'll, we'll put that that night commercial if, if if anyone hasn't seen it on the on the Twitter account for Chief Wellbeing Officer, and, and you can have a look at that. Um, so Carol, uh, we're here with here with Carol Whitman. She's a program director at Universitas, and she actually interviewed uh, Tony. So Carol, what what do you think? What were some of the main takeaways or interesting things that you got in that? In that? I think interesting are two things. Uh, first of all, the relationship they have. Um, when I asked uh, Tony if the relationship is more uncle or more um, trainer, he said, we're both. Mm -hmm. Different moments, we're different roles. But the most important thing I have with uh, Rafa is that he's an exceptional, um, honest and sincere person. So working with him is, is always a pleasure. I love working with him. Second of all, um, he told me what he taught uh, Rafa about uh, or how to be better every day. One of the things he taught him was you have to improve a little bit every day. Mm -hmm. In the first year, years, he asked him every day, what would you do better today than you did yesterday? At some point, this was something he did on his own. He was improving every day a little bit something. And, and nowadays you see him when he stops playing, he sits and he thinks, what could I do better now than what I uh, did five minutes ago. Yeah. It's part of, of his way of being, not not anymore his way of playing, it's his way of being as a as a person. Yeah, because we're never perfect, right? We're never the finished article. And I think that's the same in the professional context also, um, partly because the challenge always changes, Rory. You, know? you have to always think, I guess in sport, there's always been that case of marginal gains. Uh, and, and, and how you can keep striving for perfection, even if you you know that you're never going to get there. I mean, the bar is always going to get higher. 
the bar never gets lower. The bar is always going to get higher. And a great thing you discussed with, with Tony was even when Rafa was back to number one, maybe we can talk about that in a second, the comeback, but he relaxed and he said, it's great, I'm number one. And Tony said, yeah, you might be number one in the world in the rankings, but you weren't number one in terms of second serves. You weren't number one in terms of receival, receiving the serves. And we're going to work on those things. It's tenacity and you have to keep going because the bar will only ever get higher. And more, more than tenacity, what he wants from Tony is humility. Mm -hmm. And he wants it. He wants that from each part of, of the team, even though he says that tennis is not a team sport. It's true they have a team. They have a big team. And it's everything about humility. Don't focus. Don't put yourself in the focus. Put the, the target in the focus. Mm -hmm. And the target is Rafa wins. Mm -hmm. That's his main value. Yeah. So you mentioned at the beginning also the, the role, the dual role. He's an uncle and he's also a coach. Um, what, what do you think that, Rory? Would you like your dad to have been your coach when you were skiing when you were younger? No, it's an interesting point. My first coach was my dad. Um, of course, you know, parents, loved ones, they, they can tell you certain things. Maybe others cannot. There's some great examples of this in, in sport. You know, there's the Rafa Tony partnership, uh, Sebastian Coe, the great, you know, Olympic middle distance runner. And his father was, was famously his coach. I know in, in other exploits, other sports, chess world, for example, there's, there's good examples. And I think as long as you can compartmentalize the two different things, there's a certain amount of feedback that only a loved one could give. It's only a loved one. It's only Rafa Nadal's uncle that can kick him out of bed the day after he becomes a Wimbledon champion again to say, get up and get back out on the court. Yeah, so I don't know, just being able to share those those home truths, um, especially if you got to number one in the world, would you always take that honest, tough feedback from a contracted coach? And if you look at Andy Murray, and I think he's been very successful, um, but he's changed coaches a lot. And I, I think I'm sure there's advantages to that because he's got different perspectives, he's improved in different ways, there's been a different approach to, to try and make him the best. But maybe he just fell out with guys now and again, and he just thought, "Hey, you're getting fired. I'm going to find, I'm going to find another coach." So that familial connection, you know, in the workplace, you know, does that work? Have a paternal maternal relationship um, to be able to share, you know, very brutally sometimes that that honest truth that is going to be difficult to swallow, but then it may be actually, you know, better in the long run for for performance. You know, I think in, in the case of Tony Nadal. He never expected to be his coach forever. That's the feeling I have from the interview. He he always talks about humility, about uh, not believing too much about yourself. And I have the feeling he didn't really thought he was going to come so far with uh, Rafa. So maybe that's a reason why he was always renewing himself to be a better trainer. And that's why he, he was the best trainer always for for Rafa. Mm -hmm. Let's remember, I mean, he's also being very humble in all of this. I know he said to you, he goes, I can't be that good a coach because my kids aren't any good at tennis and I'm their coach as well. Um, but I really think that comes down to his humility. He's, yeah. he's the coach, not of the world's number one, but a player that, you know, is one of the greatest players in history. And we've just seen has delivered an incredible comeback. I mean, Stephen, as an athlete, what do you think about this comeback? 
it's it's incredible. You know, the the, the, the interesting thing in many sports and I've experienced this myself you know as you get older you tend to get injured more frequently um and then there's always a joke in kind of my running community that what number comeback is this you're on now Stephen you know you've had a couple of months off because you can't always maintain that intensity so maybe mentally you just need a break or physically you need a break because you're injured there's always that you know that concept of being on a comeback it's very hard to sustain that excellence and look I'm talking about amateur athletics at the end of the day um, nothing compared to the intensity that's required to be number one in a sport that is famously well known for its demands over the over the full calendar year um, so it's really interesting that point Roy because you know in chief well-being officer we talk about the S-curve and how the S-curve can apply to one's own life and business you know we, we're not always riding high we always have to go through some transition uh, to then excel in, in the longer term. And I think we certainly see that in, in the case of Rafa Nadal, right? He came back very strongly and he's done that a couple of times. Um, so, Carol, I mean, you asked him, Tony, about that, right? Yeah, I asked him about uh, Rafa being at a very low moment last year and how he came back and, and what is his uh, way of motivating Rafa and, his, and, and himself. Oh, he had to motivate Rafa and himself at the same time. And he said, well... My, um, the way I, I think about it, or I believe in motivation is I have to have it in any case. I have to have it in bad moments and good moments, always in the highest uh, point. Because it doesn't matter if I'm very, very high, I need to keep on motivated. And if I'm very, very low, I need the same motivation. So for him, it's something, it's always like that. It's motivated the whole time. It doesn't matter in which level he is. His yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. Rory, in your own teams over the years, in the, in the particular approach you've taken, in the, you know, the comeback concept or, you know, sustaining performance in the longer term, I guess it's all about that, right? Look, I think definitely as one gets older, sometimes you have to take some time out, especially it's very demanding as a professional athlete. I just think there's one point that's important to mention is also know when to quit. You know, we talk about the S-curves in, in our Chief Wellbeing Officer book. And, you know, there's the, the C part of the curve where you're, you're making decisions and you're working out how to make the comeback and jumping to a new curve. We, we call it the B curve. But it could be that you're also moving towards the D and the D is inevitable. And the, the, the D part of the curve is also denial. Yeah. We also need to know when to quit. And I think there's some very good recent examples of some people, um, 100-meter athletes perhaps, um, you know, Usain Bolt, Linford Christie, good examples of 100-meter athletes that maybe they just should have quit a little bit before for their lasting memory and legacy to have been um, pristine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, really interesting point. So, yeah, some really interesting points there, Carl. So, you know, this was a an interview. We're going to pick some of the best parts. It was done in Spanish. So for you, those of you listening, hopefully you've got some takeaways. If you don't understand Spanish, you've got some nice takeaways from this interview. We know many of the people who listen to the podcast are bilingual, so hopefully you'll you'll enjoy this uh, upcoming uh, podcast with Carol talking to Tony Nadal. Enjoy. In keeping with the spirit of New York, let's beat the traffic, let's get a jump on the rush. So before he officially retires, let's toast a man who's quietly become one of the most successful coaches the sport has known. 
Earlier this year, Tony Nadal, quietly of course, announced that this would be his last season coaching his nephew Rafa. It didn't get much attention. Maybe that's because Uncle Tony, as he's known to all, has, like a certain 15-time Grand Slam champ, never been one to call attention to himself. He was a lucky man, a lucky coach. And maybe it's because the retirement simply seemed, well, reasonable. We're talking about a man in his mid-50s who's been traveling the globe for the better part of 15 years. As Uncle Tony, though, appears in what could be his last Grand Slam, let's take some inventory. Here's a man with a modest tennis resume of his own who developed one of the towering talents in tennis history and then coached him to 15 majors. Tony Nadal turned a righty into a lefty. He knew how to motivate his nephew and also how to get him to avoid burnout. While let's be clear, it was Rafa doing the winning, Tony was there, there to support, there to help game plan, there to talk with the familiarity of family. As it stands, Nadal has won more than 70 titles in 850 matches. I am happy to watch what has done my nephew. Assigning the value of a tennis coach is always tricky. You want to give credit where it's due, but you never want to minimize the achievements of the players themselves, the one who are actually in the arena. It's especially tough here. The player in question has been astonishingly successful on his own. It's worth noting that Nadal's resurgent year in 2017 has coincided with Carlos Moya playing a bigger role. And still, Uncle Tony's track record doesn't just speak for itself, it's screamed. I want to say thank you very much for all, no? especially for my uncle, he's my, young, my, my coach. With his nephew in good hands, Tony says he'll now focus his attention on his namesake academy. It'll be interesting to see how he'll develop and cultivate talent when there's not a blood relation. As he sizes up his final major, Tony says that he leaves without regrets. In so many words, my work here is done. Is it ever. Primero que todo, muchísimas gracias por estar acá. Es un gran honor. Eh, Tony, eres probablemente... Si me, si me ¿sí? conocieras de verdad, sabrías que no eres un gran honor que estuviera aquí. Y lo primero, uh, buenos días a todo el mundo. Y me llamo Tony Nadal. Yo creo que to todos te conocemos muy bien. Eres probablemente el entrenador más famoso de España en el mundo. Eh, has logrado, ya nos contarás un poco, uno, que, tu que tu sobrino gane eh, unos cuantos Grand Slam, tengo que leerlo, 16 Grand Slam, 10 Roland Garros y 4 Copas Davis. ¿Qué tanto eh, es trabajo tuyo? ¿Qué tanto <coughs> es trabajo de tu sobrino? ¿Qué, ¿Qué has hecho tú para lograr que tu sobrino llegue a donde llegue? Y, bueno, ¿Y cómo lo ves? ¿Cómo, cómo empezó todo? Más el bien? mérito es prácticamente todo mío. <risa> <risa> y bueno, es, sin mí creo que Rafael no hubiera ganado nada. Mira, el mérito es totalmente de Rafael y, y yo he tenido la suerte de tener un alumno muy bueno que ha hecho creer al a la gente, a, a algunos, que yo era un buen entrenador. Yo siempre digo, Rafael debe ser muy bueno, porque con un entrenador bastante normal ha ganado lo que ha ganado. Así es que el mérito, y es cierto, es prácticamente todo suyo. Uh, yo intervine en, en la época de formación de Rafael, uh, eh, eh, 
en fomentar, en entrenar ciertos o ciertas características tanto de su juego como de su carácter, pero no, no el tema es de, es de Rafael, claro. ¿Y cómo empezó todo? ¿Cómo, ¿Cómo llegaste tú a ser el entrenador de él? Eh, hace 27 años que lo eres. ¿Cómo fue esa relación y, y qué has aportado tú al éxito de Tony? En de Rafael. Eh, ¿no? De Rafael. Bueno, yo te diré... Rafael el, Lentí, ¿no? Yo empecé a entrenarle porque soy su entrenador. Bueno, porque soy su... Perdón, ahora ya está. Porque soy su tío... Esta es la razón principal por la cual he sido su entrenador tanto tiempo. Siempre es más difícil sustituir a un familiar. Y después hay otra condición también muy clara, que es que he sido el entrenador más barato del circuito. Y como nosotros somos medio catalanes, pues vigilamos el tema del dinero. Uh, todo empezó cuando Rafael tenía tres años, que... Vino, mi hermano me lo llevó allí al, al club, empecé a tirarle alguna pelota y, y a partir de aquí empezó todo. Vi que él lo hacía más o menos bien y ya cuando, yo no me recuerdo muy bien la edad, pero más o menos cuando él tuvo cuatro o cinco años ya empezó a entrenar eh, dos o tres veces por semana y bueno, lo primero es jugar, ¿no? no entrenar, y con siete, ocho, y así que ya entrenábamos. Ya teníamos claro, yo tenía claro, que él uh, sería un buen jugador. Porque yo entiendo, no entiendo, ahora la gente que me escucha puede pensar, este, este tío es idiota, con un niño de siete años ver esto. Yo le dije a mi hermano, al padre de Rafael, que su hijo sería campeón de España, porque yo había tenido un chico con anterioridad que era el número dos de España y lo hacía bastante peor que él. Entonces pensé, este será campeón de España. Y después, por otra razón, aparte de ser su tío, que esto me hacía tener más ilusión, aparte también yo creo que en la vida tú tienes que entrenar siempre con confianza. Tienes que tener la confianza suficiente en que con tu trabajo vas a conseguir lo que te propones, si no es muy difícil trabajar bien. Yo he de decir que yo siempre tuve la confianza de que Rafael sería un muy buen jugador. ¿Cómo fue la, la relación de ustedes dos durante estos 27 años? ¿Más tío, más entrenador? No, yo fui tío cuando salía de la pista y entrenador cuando estaba en ella. Uh, fui un entrenador bastante duro, bastante exigente, porque yo creo en la exigencia por, en, por encima de todo. Yo fui duro porque entendía que tenía que preparar a mi sobrino para algo realmente difícil, ser uno de los mejores del mundo. Entonces yo entendía que tenía que hacer aquí el trabajo. Pero yo he de decir que yo no sería nunca duro con alguien que no pudiera asumir esta dureza. Esta dureza. Yo no sería nunca duro con alguien por el que no sintiera una gran estimación. Yo he entendido siempre la dureza como un medio y nunca como un fin en sí mismo. Yo quería, por encima de todo, fortalecer el carácter y el carácter se eh, fortalece con acción, con acciones, no se fortalece con palabras. Es muy fácil decir, no, tienes que hacer, no, es haciéndolo. 
Yo, yo recuerdo si él se dejaba la botella de agua, no bebía en todo, no bebía en todo el entreno. A mí me daba igual, oye, si había algún problema con esto tenemos que jugar y no pasa nada. Pues siempre iba en la línea de fortalecer el carácter de que él llegara a dominar la voluntad, pero siempre con una idea muy clara, hacer lo mejor para él. Pero gran parte es la motivación, supongo, y el, el año pasado, sí. antes eh, de, de, de que Rafa retomara su buen momento, tuvo un momento bastante crítico, que me imagino que para ti también habrá sido muy crítico. ¿Cómo retomas esa no, para motivación? Mí fue menos, y él, para él y para yo ti. Yo te diré, para mí fue menos crítico porque yo soy un agradecido de la vida. A mí la vida me ha tratado mucho mejor de lo que esperaba, mucho mejor de lo que merezco. Y cuando las cosas iban mal, yo le decía a Rafael, no mires puntualmente el tema. Ahora estás el 7 o el 8 del mundo, para mí ya, ya, ya está suficientemente bien. Has estado bastante tiempo el número uno, has ganado la, muchos torneos. Entonces, no, no, no hagamos un drama de una derrota, no hagamos una tragedia de, de haber bajado en el ranking. Evidentemente, uno quiere uh, estar arriba, quiere intentar o, o queríamos en aquel momento volver a, a competir al más, al más alto nivel, pero yo no, no, no le di en ningún momento una gran importancia a, a las derrotas. Yo lo único que le decía es, oye, intentemos recuperar el buen juego pongámonos a trabajar un poco más, cambiemos alguna cosa y lo primero que cambiamos fue que Djokovic se lesionó, Murray se lesionó Tenía que y, haber y, esto, y esto nos ha favorecido un poco, no. En otras ocasiones fue Rafael el que se lesionó y les, y les vino bien a los demás, este año ha sido a nosotros. Yo creo que al final en la vida, mi discurso con él siempre es, oye, vive... Eh, las cosas de una manera normal, no exageremos ni las victorias ni las derrotas y mira, aprovechemos el tiempo intentemos hacerlo lo mejor posible, si con eso eres el número uno perfecto, si con eso eres el 21, no tan bien, pero eh, al menos nos tenemos que ir con la tranquilidad de haberlo intentado, nada más. 